0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai.
1: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-metre band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-metre band to far west Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabis Oluhoko and Figi Lilingwati. In our top stories, the first person to be diagnosed with Ebola in the U.S. has died. Mining executive Bernard Swanepoel says the South African mining industry continues to be characterized by conflicting interests. And the South African Minister of Environmental Affairs has launched the 2013-2014 National Environmental Compliance and Enforcement Report. In economics, Anglo-American CEO speaks out on mining methods. And in sports news, the rivalry between two huge sporting nations, South Africa and Australia, resumes again. But first up the news with and Loser.
2: Good morning. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has appeared before the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Kenyatta is the first sitting president to appear before the chamber. He faces charges of crimes against humanity in connection with post-election violence in Kenya in 2007 and 2008. Kenyatta's lawyers called for judges to acquit him of charges against humanity. Defence lawyer Stephen Kaye called for the case to be terminated for lack of evidence. Kuniko Ozaki is the judge who presided yesterday's hearing. She spoke directly to
3: Kenyatta. This hearing has been convened to address matters of fundamental importance which impact directly on your rights as an accused as well as the interests of victims and witnesses in this case.
2: Nigeria has accused South Africa of blocking a legal arms purchase. A top official in the office of Nigeria's National Security Advisor says the country had an agreement to buy more than $5 million worth of military hardware in a deal that a South African firm had brokered. The official who asked to be anonymous says South Africa has frozen cash that had been wired to the South African firm's account. The move followed last month's seizure of $9.3 million in cash from a private jet carrying two Nigerians and an Israeli in Johannesburg. Nigeria, which says it needs the arms to fight an Islamist insurgency raging in the northeast, says both payments were intended for deals between private companies, procuring weapons for Nigerian forces. Peacekeepers are increasingly becoming victims of terrorist attacks now that the UN is the main foreign Presence in Mali UN peacekeeping chief Hervé Latsus Briefed the security council From the UN mission in the country Minusma Since the UN began its operation In July last year 31 peacekeepers have been killed And 66 injured Latsu says the rate of these attacks Has increased substantially During the last three months Due to the reduction of French and Malian troops In the north of the country Latsus says this has made the situation More threatening for the UN
4: This makes us the target for all these spoilers, extremists, jihadists, traffickers who would want to have the ground exclusively to themselves so as to be able to carry on with their nefarious activities.
2: Liberian President Ellen Johnson Salif says the world's response to the Ebola crisis in West Africa has been too slow. Johnson Salif was visiting the north of Liberia. She says she wants to give her people hope that the virus could be beaten. The World Health Organization has, however, warned that there was no evidence yet that the epidemic was being brought under control. Johnson Salif has also dismissed warnings from the WHO that as many as 20,000 people could be infected with Ebola by next month, saying an education campaign was curbing traditional practices in Liberia that had helped to spread the highly contagious virus. Meanwhile, the first man to be diagnosed with Ebola in the United States has died. The hospital where Liberian National Thomas Eric Duncan has been receiving treatment has confirmed his death. shown Bryce Peace reports.
5: The hospital had for days now described Duncan's condition as critical as news emerged that he had been receiving an experimental drug, was on a ventilator and receiving dialysis. He was suspected to have contracted the deadly virus in Monrovia before travelling to the United States on September 20th, where he began to show symptoms five days later. Hospital officials initially sent Duncan home with antibiotics after he was taken to the emergency room, only for him to return two days later with more severe symptoms when he and his family was immediately quarantined. The United States has been on high alert since the diagnosis, with tougher screening measures expected to be put in place at airports in the United States and abroad.
2: And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, so Africa, amka na
6: unai.
1: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The first person to be diagnosed with Ebola in the U.S. has died. Thomas Eric Duncan, who caught the virus in his native Liberia, was being treated with an experimental drug in isolation in a Dallas hospital in the U.S. state of Texas. Meanwhile, medical staff in West Africa say there is an urgent need for expertise and an urgent need for basic infrastructure. The United States says it will deploy up to 4,000 troops to several countries, including Liberia, that has been hit by the Ebola crisis. An estimated 7,000-plus cases of the virus have been officially recorded, with more than 3,400 people dead. Experts say this could just be the tip of the iceberg, as some cases still go unreported. Elizabeth Ledicha reports.
7: A region gripped by fear and panic as people struggle to cope with the fast-spreading and deadly Ebola virus. Many Ebola treatment centers in West Africa are overwhelmed with the sick and dying, with patients sharing beds and the dead lying near the desperately ill. Nancy Lundberg, the U.S. aid assistant administrator for the Bureau for Democracy, conflict and humanitarian assistance, recently visited Liberia. She says treatment centers there face countless challenges.
2: You know, without question, this is an unprecedented historic outbreak. We're able to visit in Liberia. Some of the Ebola treatment units that are under construction as well as those that are already up and running. There are six currently operational in, in Liberia. And without question, these are complicated issues of logistics and management to make them effective and with the kind of treatment prevention that is so critical.
7: A group that has not been spared from the virus is children. Hundreds of them have been killed by the epidemic. Yet. For the thousands others spared, the grim struggle for survival has just begun. Children in this part of Africa finding themselves alone in the world, ostracized by communities, terrified and without family to look after them. While many have slammed the international community for not doing enough to stop the virus in its tracks, Donald Liu, Deputy Coordinator for Ebola Response in the U.S. Department of State, has commended the U.N. for the leadership it has shown.
8: In the case of the Ebola epidemic, we have seen great leadership in the past weeks by the United Nations. U.N. Secretary General has established the U.N. Mission for Emergency Ebola Response with a Regional Command Center in Accra, Ghana, and led by special representatives on the ground in all three of the affected countries. The U.N. Secretary General has also convened an Ebola summit two weeks ago in New York with the aim of building a truly global coalition.
7: With about 4,000 U.S. troops expected to be deployed in response to the Ebola crisis, many are asking how the soldiers will fight the disease. The U.S. Army's Lieutenant Stephen Hammer explains what the military's role will be.
8: Ebola is not just a regional threat, it's a potential global threat. The military has unique capabilities that our government needs during this crisis to support this international effort. And in support of the U.S. government effort, with USAID as the lead federal agency. Our focus is on coordinating military support in conjunction with the interagency by providing logistics, training, and engineering support. We are standing up a Joint Forces Command, United Assistance Headquarters there in Monrovia, Liberia, to provide regional coordination of U.S. military support to U.S. government and international relief efforts. We are also establishing a regional intermediate staging base to facilitate and expedite the transportation of equipment, supplies, and personnel there in Dakar, Senegal. We will also establish a training site, which will be able to train up to 500 healthcare care support providers per week, enabling healthcare care workers to safely provide direct medical care.
7: Aid agencies working in West Africa have warned that with the number of Ebola cases doubling up roughly every three weeks, The world has only four weeks to stop the crisis from spiraling out of control reporting for channel africa i'm elizabeth Lidira in johannesburg
1: the first person to be diagnosed with ebola in the united states has died now our question to you today is will the fact that the u.s has been hit with its first death by ebola force the world to view the ebola crisis in a more serious manner Email us your views and thoughts at to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, the South African Medical Association has called on the World Health Organization to strengthen health care facilities and increase public communication and awareness in African countries affected by the Ebola virus. Speaking at the 65th World Medical Association General Assembly held in Durban, Sama President Ms. Dr. Mzukisi Sikrotbom said Ebola should not be treated as a virus affecting only the African continent, but as an epi- epidemic affecting the whole world. Other delegates attending the meeting raise concern about the working conditions of medical workers dealing with the Ebola virus in West Africa. Dungwa reports.
9: Delegates attending the World Medical Association's General Assembly have urged authorities to take immediate action to protect health personnel who are on the front line in treating people infected with Ebola Since the outbreak of the disease several months ago, thousands of people have died or become infected, including doctors and healthcare workers. Outbreaks have been reported mainly in Western African countries such as Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria and Ivory Coast medical associations who attended the meeting also urged the world health organization and the united nations to assist in strengthening medical systems in countries affected by ebola they say these countries are struggling to deal with the virus on their own chairman of the south african medical associations dr Mzugi securit explains
10: we need to recognize that this is an epidemic which is going to affect many countries and also we need to recognize that it's now contained within the West African region purely because those are fragile states and people need to recognize that fragile states are those states who usually have the collapse of many systems particularly their health systems and education systems so it is important that any aid agencies firstly address the issue of strengthening the health systems
9: Emphasis on importance of handling all suspected cases of Ebola as seriously as diagnosed ones was also made. Howard Bohm says governments must ensure that the public is informed, especially when people perform rituals before the burial of family members. He also stressed the importance of wearing protective gloves when handling people infected with the virus.
10: In those areas, there are people who are already working with the population on the ground and need to link up with them and not isolate them and also make sure that those people, the, their interventions encompass the local communities and local health workers who, had, who also had some interventions in the process. We also were making a, a call to other agencies, particularly the World Health Organization, to strengthen uh, uh, the, the training of surveillance systems and, 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 and the containment of, of outbreaks like Ebola and others.
9: Meanwhile, National Councilor of Sama Akhtar Singh, has urged people using social media to stop spreading rumors about Ebola cases in South Africa, as this causes unnecessary panic. According to Dr. Singh, South African healthcare authorities are ready to deal with any outbreak in the country.
11: South Africa is well aware of this Ebola and well prepared because 2010 during World Cup, we did prepare for hemorrhagic virus yellow fever, you name all those infectious disease. And that is strengthen our prevention program and handling all those type of infection. So when Ebola outbreak we heard in Central Africa, Sierra Leone and other countries, we've been started educating our health workers, doctors, our community, media, and we are well prepared to handle through the borders, through the airports. So I think we will able to manage to control.
9: The General Assembly will continue tomorrow with other national medical associations raising their recommendations in dealing with the Ebola virus. I'm Nongja Dungwa in Durban.
1: President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya has been attending the status conference of the International Criminal Court at The Hague where he faces charges of crimes against humanity. He has been attending the court proceedings in his private capacity having temporarily handed powers to his deputy William Ruto as the acting president for the duration of the conference. But according to the office of the ICC chief prosecutor, Kenyatta's trial should be adjourned indefinitely for lack of enough evidence to sustain conviction. Mwaike Konya reports from Nairobi.
6: International Criminal Court is now in session.
0: President Urukenyatta of Kenya is the first serving head of state to appear before the International Criminal Court of the Hague for charges of crimes against humanity. He attended the court proceeding in his private capacity and not as head of state. Before leaving Nairobi, President Kenyatta temporarily handed his presidential powers to his deputy, William Ruto, as acting president of Kenya for the short duration of the ICC status conference. At least 100 members of Parliament and the Senate accompanied the President at the Hague and during the morning and afternoon session of the status conference President Uhuru Kenyatta was not required to address the court However, the Office of the Prosecutor maintained that Kenyatta's trial has reached a deadlock for lack of sufficient evidence to sustain charges against the Kenyan leader And speaking on behalf of the Office of the Prosecutor Mr. Goldberg claimed that Kenyan government declined to cooperate with the court and refused to hand over financial and telephone records that the prosecutor was banking on to keep Kenyatta's case alive. The prosecutor blamed Kenyan authorities for failing to provide essential information necessary for the prosecution. There has been bitter and acrimonious exchange between the prosecutor and Kenya's Attorney General Gedi on the matter. We don't have access to any other number which is said to have been Mr. Kenyatta's at the time. And therefore, we are not in a position to give the Attorney General what he says he wants because we don't have that information. It is indeed the information which we are seeking
8: from the Kenyan government.
12: All these witnesses that are referred to by the prosecutor, to whom phone calls were made, surely, must have received phone calls from specific numbers. Give me those specific numbers. Give me 72 hours and I'll bring you the phone logs. It is true. Unless the prosecution is able to tell us we are interested in land reference number 100, please get us a search on that title. And I have promised you if that happens, we will bring the search within 72 hours. We have also said, if you know of a motor vehicle by its registration, and you give me the number, I will bring the logbook that tells us who owes that number, and I will do it in 72 hours.
0: The office of the prosecutor has been demanding that Kenyatta's trial should be adjourned indefinitely until the Kenyan government comply with the prosecutor's request for more information regarding Mr. Kenyatta. If Kenyan authorities decline to provide the data, the ICC judges should refer the matter to the Assembly of State Parties for sanctions. If this court judges the government of Kenya to be in breach of its duties, it will be for the Assembly of States Parties uh, to discuss that matter and decide what, if any, reprimand or sanction they impose upon the government of Kenya. But those have only an indirect impact upon this case. But Kenyatta's different lawyers maintain that the case facing their client, Uhuru Kenyatta, should be terminated and withdrawn for lack of evidence defense lawyer Stephen Kay. In my submission, it has. And a line is entitled to be drawn now under the conduct of this case against Mr. Kenyatta. He is entitled to his verdict of not guilty because this case has not been brought. There are no further inquiries going on. It is plainly not the case that was brought against him that can be sustained at all. But before the end of the status conference, lawyer for the victims of the post-election violence in Kenya said it was unfair to have victims pay the price for obstruction of justice by the Kenyan government. The judges are now expecting to make a decision on the way forward after the prosecution and the defense lawyers made their submissions. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Gikonyo in Nairobi.
1: Foreign diplomats in South Africa say they're concerned about their safety in the country. This comes after 40-year-old Fatmi Noureddini of the Moroccan diplomat diplomatic corps was found dead at his guest house in Pretoria. Nouradini was found in a pool of blood by his colleagues. The diplomatic corps, a structure of foreign representatives in South Africa, says they rely on diplomats' envoy police for their safety and security. Maluti Obusing reports.
13: Pretoria is second to Washington in having most embassies in the world. The latest incident is likely to thrust the plight of foreign nationals in South Africa into spotlight. A Moroccan diplomat at the Moroccan embassy in Pretoria was found dead in a pool of blood. This was realized after he failed to show up for work. After colleagues... Failed to get hold of him on the phone. As it was off, they decided to go check up on him at his guest house. That was when they made a gruesome discovery. This prompted reaction from diplomatic corps, a body of foreign representatives in South Africa. The diplomatic corps' dean is Bene Mpoko.
4: Safety is a matter of concern to the diplomatic community because when you're serving in the uh, in the foreign country, you have your family, you have yourself, and so forth. So you would like to interact in a very significant way with all levels of members of the host country, government, um, civil society, uh, and so forth, the schools. We like to roam around the country, to know about the country and then uh, try to build a very solid uh, relationship with the host country.
13: However, Mpoko says this incident will not cause diplomatic row between South Africa and Morocco. He says diplomatic corps is engaging the South African government on issues affecting foreign representatives in the country.
4: We're in dialogue, we're in constant communication with the South African government. So then know our concerns and uh, we express them, they respond. We discuss those issues uh, with the South African government and the police department uh, and so forth. So it's an ongoing dialogue, so uh, we'll keep it that way. In most cases, and it's particularly in this case, it's not the South African government that is involved in for an envoy. So it doesn't have an impact between the two countries. The relationship between countries will not be affected uh, because of that.
13: Meanwhile, South African police in Gauteng says it has put together a team of detectives to investigate the death of Noridin. Police say they are awaiting autopsy results to determine the cause of Noridin's death. Gauteng police spokesperson Neville Malila.
14: We have put a team of detectives together to do the investigation. We haven't managed to arrest anybody. The motive at this stage is still um, unknown, and we are awaiting autopsy results to determine
13: um, the cause of death. The Moroccan press agency has quoted Moroccan foreign ministry saying it has taken administrative and legal procedures in collaboration with South African authorities following Nordin's death. The diplomatic corps sent condolences to the Moroccan government. Malutu in Pretoria.
1: Mining executive Bernard Swanepoel says the South African mining industry continues to be characterized by conflicting interests. Swanepoel is one of the conveners of the two-day Joburg Indaba on mining. The gathering brings together mining executives, labor and government. Frank Ngumalo compiled this report. Swanepoel
12: says both shareholders, workers and the society should have an honest conversation about the issues confronting the mining sector.
13: The the environment to build new mines doesn't exist. There is no appetite for new capital. Um, There's a significant set of demands to be met by workers. Society is not happy with what we've done in terms of investing in the communities. Shareholders want better returns and dividends. Um, we need to build new mines. New mines are more expensive than ever, um, and when the gold price goes down, you make less money, regardless of how you operate. The same is happening to platinum, coal, iron ore. Perhaps the exception is, uh, you know, would be diamonds. Tough time for the industry.
12: ANC Secretary General told delegates at the event that executives in the industry are fueling negative perception about the sector in South Africa. Mantashe says this is because South Africa no longer has locally owned mining companies. Mantashe also appealed to Anglo-American to use the sale of their assets to create black mine owners. Anglo-American has recently indicated that it is selling some of its unprofitable operations in the Rustenberg area. Mantashe says the Anglo should give preferences to black bidders.
11: Anglo can sell the Rustenberg mine can say, you section is their business. They sell it. But what we should remember, it can't be just selling their assets to the highest speaker. They must appreciate that that creates an opportunity to empower black South Africans to own minds as well. Even if they go in partnership with established companies, please try to facilitate that process. ANLO has done that well in the past. It must continue to that in this opportunity and not just look forward to the highest
12: leader. Mineral Resources Minister Ngokora Matoti told that South Africa risks losing some investments in the oil and gas sectors if it does not listen to concerns of the industry. The proposed oil and gas bill requires that the stake takes at least 20% free stake in all the new explorations. The minister says government shares the industry concerns about regulatory certainty.
15: We have since uh, made representations to the president and we are assured that he will make a decision very soon. In the meantime what we have tried to do was to ready the department for processes leading to amendments if the bill should be referred back to Parliament so that the time frames, the delays are dealt with. We contract the process in order to begin to provide the certainty that the industry wants.
12: Also at Indaba. Anglo-American CEO Mark Kutifani told delegates that older mining methods threaten the sustainability of the industry. Kutifani says although it is reasonable for workers to demand more wages, the industry will have no future unless it restructures and modernizes.
11: We have
0: to restructure and modernize this industry. There is no future. There will be no jobs if we continue the older labor-intensive operations that still dominate our landscape. There are no stronger, more noble individuals in this industry than the workers that go down underground in the deep mines in gold, platinum and other parts of the industry. But that can't be our future. We have to come together and work out how to navigate in the next ten years
10: establishment of a modern South African industry
1: and that was Anglo-American CEO Mark Kutifani ending that report by Frank Ngumalo
5: on the 15th of October millions of Mozambicans will be going to the polls to elect a new president these will be the most exciting and hotly contested elections since the first in nineteen ninety-four the main contenders are the ruling for limo main opposition renamo and mdm parties channel africa will be in mozambique to bring you daily events from the country's main regions until the polling day We will bring you the development in six languages namely english french Portuguese, Kiswahili, Silozi and Chinyanja. So, join us from the 13th to the 17th of October for all the information you need about the important event. Let Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, be your link to the Mozambique 2014 presidential elections.
1: The South African Deputy Minister of Communications, Stellan Dabeni Abraham, c- celebrated National Digital Day in style with the launching of the South African government's application on Mixit. And it's 8.30 Central African time. We will come back to the story as we cross over to our headlines with Anne Musa.
2: In the headlines, President Uhuru Kenyatta's lawyers call for judges in The Hague to acquit the Kenyan president of charges against humanity has appeared for pre-trial hearings before the International Criminal Court. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has issued an urgent plea to all nations to boost their response to the fight against Ebola, warning there's no time to waste. And Mozambique's former rebel leader, Afonso Tlalcama, is pulling huge crowds on his presidential election campaign. Those are the stories making headlines.
1: Thank you, Anne. The South African Deputy Minister of Communications, Stellan Abraham, celebrated National Digital Day in style with launching with the launching of the South African government's application on Mixit. Mixit is a proudly South African company with at least 5 million monthly users, of which 65% are between the ages of 18 and 35. She says the South African government is now able to engage with more than 500,000 users in the country on the government's applications. Benjamin Zodetzi attended the launch and filed this report.
14: Navina says... The South African Mobile Social Network will enable government to reach and engage all South Africans in the country.
16: Therefore, ours is to create that engagement with those that are out there, together with government, because we have a responsibility of taking the information in terms of the services that we're offering to those that are in need. Remember, if we can't get the mother, the father or the uncle, at least if we get the child, the child is able to go back and share the information with those that are at home. By doing that, then we have extended communication to everybody. That was the importance of today. And also to encourage our communicators not to only focus, as I mentioned earlier, on the print and radio only, but to move with the times. This is the digital era.
14: Mixit CEO Andrew Davis says Mixit started as a messaging service for young people in South Africa. It was started as um, an SMS replacement service um, for the purposes of providing low-cost uh, communication as an alternative to the services that you would use with, the, with your, your normal telecoms providers. Since then, this company has done a number of incredible things, um, and government is a key uh, client for Mixit, and it's also a key source of content for the audience that we have on our platform today. The South African government application was downloaded by more than 130,000 subscribers during the first week. The transport department also has a nextit application, which has to date 120,000 subscribers. The department is faced with three main challenges, including road rage, the use of drugs and alcohol on the road, and texting while driving. Transport department spokesperson. Ian Recorto says they have partnered with Mixit because it is accessible.
4: The potential that Mixit has helped for us to be able to put some of our messages uh, across, particularly to the target audience or the audience that we find within the Mixit platform. At least uh, 50% of the people who are surrounding other motorists around on their phones. Uh, it, it's scary. Uh, like I said, other people really attempt to operate
14: an iPad a uh, Wi-Fi have it on top of steering with others read newspapers. So hence we uh embracing Mixit as a platform which we believe that will be able to reach that particular audience of people who are whose behavior is a concern to us. The Western Cape Provincial Government also makes use of a Mixit application and Benjamin Satziv Pretoria.
1: Zimbabwe's manufacturing output has slumped to 36.3% from 39.6% last year. The latest manufacturing sector survey conducted by the Confederation of Zimbabwe Industries blames low local demand, a lack of competitiveness, shrinking export markets and power shortages for the decline. It also says a strong U.S. dollar-based currency is proving too strong for the small economy. The weakening rand makes South African products cheaper and at the expense of local goods, Shanghai Nyoka reports.
17: Refreshing ice cream about to be packaged and sold to the local market. It's food products like this, along with beverages and tobacco that have anchored the manufacturing sector capacity index at 36%. In reality, the subsectors are showing clear signs of distress, averaging less than 30%. The Confederation of Zimbabwe Industries says the weakening RAND remains one of the greatest challenges to competitiveness. Daphine Mazambani is the senior economist for the CZI.
16: 41% of the competition experienced by the local industry is emanating from South Africa, whilst China contributes at 30%. Zambia is increasingly becoming a competitor. To the local industry. In previous years, the frequency and percentages of companies who recorded competition from Zambia was negligible. Zimbabwe says it's doing all it can
17: to protect local companies. It's promised to relax labor laws to make it easier for companies to retrench workers so that companies can stay afloat. In the mid term policy statement, it increased the import duty on certain groceries but says it can only go so far. Zimbabwe Minister for Trade and Industry, Mike Bima, explains. But at the same time,
11: we also have to to pay attention to some of the uh, regional agreements that we've entered into. If you continue to ban other products to come into your country, they can also ban your products from going to their country.
17: Economists believe protectionism is a step in the right direction. Tony Hawkins explains.
4: We will start seeing a, a recovery. In fact, we at this meeting had a mention of what's happened in the edible oil industry, which is, is obviously protection, and it will also be the one in motor vehicles, which, which they've also protected. But I think what people forget is that every just about every country in Africa is deindustrializing. Zimbabwe's Zimbabwe is not alone. Um, it's a tough world to, to operate as a manufacturer today.
17: It's bad news for manufacturers, and despite signs of a turnaround in some subsectors, many have lost hope. 47% of the companies surveyed are pessimistic about the future, believing that Zimbabwe
1: is headed towards a recession. I'm Shinga Nyoka in Harare. South Africa's Department of Higher Education wants universities to extend the deadlines of the application process. Department spokesperson Kayen Konyane says the current process is not serving anyone. He says instead of universities setting deadlines, they should rather accept applications until places are full. This, he says, will deal with numerous problems institutions have to deal with at the beginning of the academic year. Our senior education reporter, Angela Boulwana, has more. Tertiary institutions have closed the application
16: period, and those who have not are fast approaching the closing date. But education stakeholders say this is the old-fashioned way of approaching applications. They say what should happen is that these institutions should allow prospective students to apply and only close the application process when places are filled. Higher Education Department spokesperson Kanye is championing this thinking saying it's high time institutions found a way of dealing with the January crunch.
12: This will assist come
11: next year that we minimize the queues of students who want to come and register but also It does not make any sense when we
12: still have spaces for students to be uh, taken, that the institution sticks to timelines against the background of the existing uh, spaces. So we, we are calling for that flexibility.
16: The call is particularly urgent this year because of the post office strike. The strike has affected certain tertiary institutions which also offer distance learning. Many are saying that it's also affected prospective students as most rely on the post office to send through their applications. Saskos Luzukobuku says it's about time the application process was modified.
10: This is, of course, an important move by uh, the department that we are really encouraging it. But we believe that also this should be uh, linked with the program of uh, conscientizing our people uh, in the various communities and rural areas to apply uh, to the institutions.
16: The Higher Education and Training Network says in conjunction with extending the application process, tertiary institutions should focus on recruiting learners from township and rural schools. Lucky Tekisho says universities tend to do presentations at well-off schools where learners have resources and information.
11: They they do not have these online uh, uh, application uh, 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 connections
4: because you you know that they are in townships and in rural areas where these things are not necessarily popular, and and most of them are very scarce and then as a result of that they are losing out to to
5: apply tenuously. on the fifteenth of october millions of mozambicans will be going to the polls to elect a new president these will be the most exciting and hotly contested elections since the first in nineteen ninety-four the main contenders are the ruling for limo main opposition renamo and mdm parties Channel Africa will be in Mozambique to bring you daily events from the country's main regions until the polling day. We will bring you the development in six languages, namely English, French, Portuguese, Kiswahili, Silozi and Chinyanja. So join us from the 13th to the 17th of October for all the information you need about the important event. Let Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, be your link to the Mozambique 2014 presidential elections.
1: The South African Minister of Environmental Affairs, Edna Malewa, has launched the 2013-2014 National Environmental Compliance and Enforcement Report yesterday in Pretoria. The report talks about the activities that have been ta- undertaken by the Department of Environmental Affairs Unit, the Green Scorpion, to enforce the compliance with the country's environmental laws. Wandile Kalipa filed this report.
11: The environmental crime crisis experienced by various countries in the world, including South Africa, is a threat to sustainable development from illegal exploitation and trade in wildlife and forest resources. South Africa is not beyond the reaches of those who choose to contravene environmental legislation, both internationally and domestically. In a ministerial statement to launch the Southern African country's national environmental compliance and enforcement report, South Africa's Minister of Environmental Affairs, Edna Molewa says a country's environmental laws and regulations have the potential to advance a green economy by improving the health and safety of the workforce and communities.
18: South Africa's environmental laws and regulations have the potential to advance a green economy by improving the health and safety of the workforce and our communities, but also conserving our natural resources and ecosystem services, promoting sustainability in the business community, as well as expanding markets for environmental goods and services, and creating sustainable jobs in driving technology information. That's major mandate that we have as well. And this opportunity is, however, being threatened by those who choose to contravene South Africa's environmental laws by engaging in illegal activities that undermine these development objectives.
11: Minister Mulewa says it is now widely recognized that consequences of environmental crimes stretch far
18: beyond ecological impact. It is now widely recognized, ladies and gentlemen, that the consequences of environmental crimes stretch far beyond ecological impact and have social, economic and health effects that disrupt entire economies and our ecosystems. Environmental crimes also undermine legal and environmentally sustainable activities and reduce future options. For the use of our natural resources which are really very important to all of us for both a social and economic development.
11: Talking about the non-compliance with environmental laws, Minister Mulewa says the consequences thereof contribute to the destruction of our ecosystems
18: and deprive communities of their livelihoods. It is important therefore to note that the consequences that arise from non-compliance with environmental laws. And amongst others, for instance, we can cite the illegal logging logging contributing to deforestation that deprives forest communities of vital livelihoods. The causes of ecological problems such as flooding and that being a major contributor to climate change. We can also cite the illicit trade in ozone-depleting substances that contributes to thinning ozone layers which causes human health problems such as skin cancer and cataracts. We can also cite the soil and water contamination from illegal hazardous waste, waste dumping that can damage ecosystems and pose significant risks to human health. So all these things are quite important and we've got to ensure that they do not happen.
11: Minister Mulewa says the report represents a department and its compliance unit, the Green Scorpions, who responds to
18: the environmental threat. The 7th National Environment Compliance and Enforcement Report indeed represents the efforts of the Department of Environmental Affairs through our compliance unit, which is called the Green Scorpion, also known as the Environmental Management Inspectorate, in responding to these threats. We obviously had to put up a body like this one, a structure like this one, so that you can deal with these issues. And the report that we are providing to you, ladies and gentlemen, does provide a national overview of environmental compliance and enforcement activities that are undertaken by the relevant institutions across the country in the period starting from the 1st of April 2013 to the 31st of March 2014, that financial year. Stating here that these are undertaken by the relevant institutions, may I also indicate that the report also represents the work of nine provincial environmental and four provincial parks authorities, the Department of Environmental Affairs, Sun Parks, and the Isimangaliso Wetland Park Authority, and it is the main communication mechanism that tells the public about the work of this inspectorate in the preceding financial year.
11: Francis Craigie, Chief Director for Enforcement at the Department of Environmental Affairs, talking about the specific statistics of the report, says from the perspective of the Green Scorpions, it is very important in terms of releasing the report.
1: And that report by Wandi Lekalipa. Economics Update up next with Tabi Solehuku.
5: The world's third largest platinum producer, Lonmin, says it has returned to full production earlier than forecast after crippling five-month wage strike, exceeding 2013 output levels in both August and September. Along with the rest of South Africa's platinum industry, Lonmin has battled persistent labor unrest, along with low prices and rising costs. But this year's strike, which ended in June, was the longest and most costly, costing Lonmin 5.6 tons of ore containing around three, 8,000 equivalent to sealable platinum ounces. Meanwhile, Anglo-American CEO Mark Kutifani says old mining methods are threatening the sustainability of the industry in South Africa. He was speaking at the Johannesburg Mining Conference. Kutifani says although it's reasonable for workers to demand more wages, the industry will have no future unless it restructures and modernizes. Rio Tinto says declining iron ore prices would lead to the elimination of 125 million tons of iron ore supply among higher cost to producers this year. According to a statement released on the Australian Securities Exchange, the world's second biggest iron ore miner intends to sell 85% of its 2014 iron ore output under the term contracts and the rest of the spot market. The iron ore prices ended September with a loss of almost 12%. It's steepest monthly decline since May. Larger volumes for global brewer Sabmela's Africa operations could have risen by 3.2% during the first half-year period to end September. Sabmela will present a trading update for the second quarter to end September next week. The update is expected to reflect stronger volume growth for the first half-year period in its rest of African operations. Tanzania's inflation rate has erred down to 6.6% this year, uh, helped by slower rises in food prices. The state-run National Bureau of Statistics says year-on-year inflation stood at 6.7% in August. As in other Eastern African countries, food prices are a major driver of inflation in Tanzania. Food and non-alcoholic beverages inflation dropped 8.5% year-on-year in September, from 8.8% in August. Financial indicators: the US dollar, 1117 South African rand, nine zero nine Botswana pula, six two six Zambian kwacha, zero six two British pound, zero seven nine to the euro. Gold, one thousand two hundred and twenty five dollars. Split number, one thousand two hundred and seventy four dollars an ounce. brand crude, nine one four five cents a barrel. Economic update.
1: Thank you, Taviso. Our sports update up next with Figi
15: Now, Sports Update is our are kicking off with food News. Leading European Soccer Club's official, Umberto Gandini, says the 2022 Winter Olympics may have to move from its traditional January and February dates to accommodate the World Cup finals being staged in Qatar. Gandini, vice chairman of the European Club Association of Europe's top 200-plus clubs and director of sport and AC Milan, told delegates at the Leaders in Sports Summit at Stamford Bridge that the World Cup should take precedence.
4: The FIFA World Cup is one of the major events into the sports landscape with the Summer Olympics. The Winter Olympics are not there with all respect as far as importance is concerned, but they are a very, very important event for the sport. But if you are moving such a huge event like the World Cup from its natural window to winter, don't tell me that it is not possible to find a solution to move a little bit the Winter Olympics in order to avoid a clash, especially now where the Winter Olympics are still under the bidding process for 2022. There are two candidates, Beijing and Almaty, and no dates are set. So I think that with wisdom and, and uh, debate, is it is possible to achieve a solution which satisfies the majority.
15: The rivalry between the two huge sporting nations, South Africa and Australia, will once again resume when the two Southern Hemisphere giants exchange blows in a week-long span netball international series in Pochefthroom. South Africa's northwest province. The South African Invitational Under-23 will take on Australian Team of Excellence from the 12th to the 18th of October at the SINDF Copanello Hall. Netball South Africa
3: event coordinator, Poshia
15: Dimu, has more.
3: Yes, there will be fireworks, honestly. Uh, These players have been playing especially uh, for the varsity netball and they've been, you know, uh, in this competition, which helps them, you know, to improve their performance for this uh, tournament. And we are grateful as well to say that, you know, to have players like them will also bring, you know, a a lot in in netball South Africa. And so um, we're looking forward for... To greater uh, opportunities for them, and then we definitely show, and we have no doubt that they will make us proud.
15: Meanwhile, according to Dimu, this will also provide a good platform for the youngsters to showcase their talent. Both teams will play three matches against each other and two five-five matches.
3: This is a great opportunity for netball to be in, to have invited the under-23, which is a young team as well as the first Five in preparation of the World Netball Series that will be taking place in New Zealand. So as we know, uh, Australia is one of the best uh, in netball uh, in the world, and South Africa also, you know, we're getting there. Or maybe let me say we are there. Uh, It's only a matter of time. So we're expecting the best out of this team
13: in rugby
15: news South african blitz three absa curry cup players will make their return to the international seventh scene this weekend at the opening event of the 2015 2015 IRB 7 series on australia's gold coast siavelos Sinata and justin hedeld did duty for the western province while guaha smith also earned a start in the golden lions curry cup campaign the trio were members of the squad that won the commonwealth games gold medal earlier this year hedel says all experienced members of the squad have been slotted in with ease.
12: I was easier for me to set, to set back up because 7th is my game The 7th is the thing I, I like the most. So it was easier for me to, to, to slot back in and I've been playing 7th for a while and I've all the stuff that we, we've done before. So it was easier
15: Snata says playing on the 7th circuit in a high pressure environment as well as success other the Commonwealth Games, have given all three players the confidence which they have brought to their 15s game.
14: I think Sevens has helped me uh, so much in my fifty man game because of the level of skill and intensity. Things happen aside, you know, you're always uh, on massive pressure. So going back to 15s, things are on a slower pace. So it, it has helped me so much uh, in my 15 man game. And playing both has, has been a well balanced, uh, well balanced game for me because on Sevens it's more running around in moon trees and fifty minutes more swim stuff so it's been a great balance for me
12: and I'm enjoying my rock right now.
15: That's a spot news at this hour
6: Africa
0: rise and shine. Africa Africa, America, America.
1: Recapping our top stories, the first person to be diagnosed with Ebola in the US has died. Mining executive Bernard Swanepoel says the South African mining industry continues to be characterized by conflicting interests, and the South African Minister of Environmental Affairs has launched the 2013-2014 National Environmental Compliance and Enforcement Report. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Lulu Kabu, producer Tracy Bumgard, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show send us an email at info@channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus +27823325905 or you can get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Jabuli Ngubeni with good morning everybody.
6: Good morning everybody, Sanborn and I am a Kaya. I am I am a Kaya, I am a Kaya, I Thank you can't see the gate